Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code, IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our live stream Q&A for Science of Future with Isaac Arthur, the Halloween edition. So, we're joined in the studio today by myself, the Mad Hatter, and my wife, who is our Red Queen. So, uh, without too much further ado, we're going to get to your questions. Um, assuming you have any questions ready, if you haven't already got them into the live stream, go ahead and start putting them in the chat window now. Do we have any questions this time? We do not. We are waiting for questions to come in. I shall randomly chat to myself for a little bit. So, <laughs> as usual with the Hallway Edition, the key is to get the questions in as quickly as possible uh, in as vividly readable fashion as possible. So, alright, do we have any now? I see one. Andrew Hartley, thank you very much. What personal rights and freedoms with the advancement of technology do you think we should be paying closer heed to, privacy wise, that don't get enough attention? Hmm. What, personal rights and freedoms? I guess there's the expectation of what you're allowed to actually have uh, in terms of secret, right? We'd say, people say, well, I got privacy. It's very much built in there. I say, well, first depends on which country you're in, but in the US Constitution, for instance, you got a assumption of privacy for like your papers and documents, but not for what goes on in your front lawn. That's not private, for instance, but what goes on with a closed window behind that, more so. And we have not really adapted a lot with some of the modern technology, I would say, the biggest one, and it's my kind of guess for how things will uploading and downloading is that no one can use your photograph without your permission and probably an opt-in in most cases. So that what's essentially going to happen in a lot of those cases would be um, like artificial intelligence for scanning face and recognizing photo ID would automatically pin you anything, blow your image, any photo, anywhere, right? And unless you say yes, that it wouldn't unblow your image. And that's probably how we get around people being able to upload other people without their permission, which is obviously ranges from mild irritation of someone taking a photograph when you're looking awkward to, you know, obviously very bad stuff like we see with people sometimes uh, taking inappropriate photographs of partners or so forth that they break up with and post. So, hope that answers the question there. Okay, we have a question from Raven609 and a super chat. Thank you, Raven. Happy Halloween, Isaac. What sort of suit would a person need to walk on the moon Titan? Thank you. Hmm. Uh, well, Saturn's moon Titan differs from our moon in that they are fairly similar in mass uh, in gravity on the surface. Titan's more massive than the moon, uh, but it's also less dense, so it results in a uh, fairly similar surface gravity. Um, but the big difference, of course, is that our moon is airless. The atmosphere there is less than one part per million of what Earth's is, right? 
Uh, whereas Titan's atmosphere of memory soil is actually a little bit more dense than ours. It's a higher pressure and it's all very, very cold methane, ammonia, stuff like that. Uh, so not stuff you could breathe, you know, if you're willing to breathe in stuff that was colder than Antarctica. And um, I would say that the key on these spaceships there is you're not worried about so much leakage from you into it, because it's overpressure. Your leakage is going to be it into you, and so you're basically trying to proof your suit uh, against higher pressure. So probably more in the, like, diving suit, scuba-type variety, but low pressure, because it's not that much of a difference. All right. Next question is from Ivan Fessler. Thank you, Ivan, for your super chat. And he says, is there copper on the moon? If not, is there any other conductive metal that we could use, such as silver? Hmm. Um, well, there's, there's iron uh, and uh, nickel there for sure. Uh, there's a lot of aluminum. I don't know what the actual amounts of copper or uh, silver are. Uh, we would expect it to be very similar to what the amount in Earth's surface is, because the, the current working assumption is that the old crust of the Earth um, was smashed up into orbit, and a bunch of it went off in deep space, a bunch of it fell back down on Earth, and a bunch of it formed the moon. And that's usually our current assumption about that content. So, And and from what we found so far, there is a pretty good correlation uh, of what's on the moon and what's on Earth's surface. The Earth's surface has a lot of churning going on from tectonics, whereas the moon's got a lot of, you know, cometary and, and asteroid bombardments. So there are differences, but you wouldn't have any problem finding conductive metals there. How much copper or silver there is, probably pale out of Earth. There's a comment that there's crude oil on the moon. Would you like to elaborate on that? Crude oil? Um, I would think probably not. Uh, you might have methane buckets on the moon. On Titan. On the uh, moon oh, on Titan. Titan. Oh, yes, yeah. Titan is one gigantic gas ball. Um, in our early stage economy uh, in, in the interplanetary space, it is actually handy to have access to something like methane on the surface. That's one reason why we're interested in Titan is you go there, air will break, uh, set up a blimp floating on the top of the atmosphere, uh, <laughs> and uh, just kind of suck some air in as you go so that uh, you could basically build a space station that was sucking up all this propellant. And, uh, you know, for deeper solar system stuff, it really is beneficial to have power systems on that. You know, like a nuclear generator there that got you oxygen and rocket fuel that you could use to power your ships back in system. So um, I don't think of it as a really good, you know, the fuel source itself, though. We're trying to move away from chemical rockets because they're not powerful enough. We're not really worried about environmental considerations with our uh, fossil fuels there so much as we're worried about uh, they're just not powerful enough. So Matthew Campbell says, will I ever be as cool as you are? I, I would love to attribute this to your costume, but I saw this comment pop up before you came on screen, so sorry. Is that from Matt <laughs> Campbell? Yes. It's one of our longtime editors, so I don't know. Yes. No. Never. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a head note, um, we have a lot of crew that are known for this or that, and uh, Matt is tends to be, you know, the, the, those these one-liners we do to open the show up each time. You know, we, you know, you know, this episode is brought to you by X, the one-liner that includes the episode in, and then the music. I would say probably about a quarter of the good ones, at least, are Matt's. If not, well, probably about a quarter of them are Matt's, and about half the good ones are Matt's. So we go. Oh my! <laughs> Dag uh, twelve. Okay, says, given that gravity tends to draw all familiar matter together, I'm sorry, given that gravity tends to draw all matter together into a roughly round object shape, why do most solar systems and galaxies level out into a flat formation? Shouldn't there be a variety of orbits? Yeah, no, that's actually a good question. Uh, first, there actually is a decent variety of orbits in our solar system. 
So like Pluto is like 19 degrees off on declination. You get a lot of Oort cloud objects that are way more uh, off that plane. But if you're wondering what happens, imagine you've got a big cloud of gas that initially starts forming up there. That cloud, in one way or another, has a certain angular momentum that's higher, right? In one direction or another, it's just there, and uh, it doesn't matter which direction it is. There's there's a slight tilt, right? As that thing starts to pack on down and things wander into each other, that angular momentum is conserved. So it's going to neutralize out until you basically got it in one direction or another. That plane is going to be set. Same for galaxies. Anything that results in that particular area having a slight kick up compared to another. If you look at the galaxies nearby us, they are not aligned with us in their terms of their planes. Each of these big pockets of primordial galaxy gas, right, were separate and formed up with their own little averages. In our case, we got uh, we got ours. And if you look at our solar system, for instance, we are not even vaguely lined up with the galactic plane. Uh, if you look at Earth orbiting around us, the, the the sun as we go around the galaxy, it looks like a weird corkscrew uh, going off a galactic angle. It's very cockeyed. So. Um, but that's what happens, is things falling into place on each other. It's uh, one of the problems we have in the case of something like dark matter and why we talk about a halo. If you look at the halo around the galaxy, which is roughly spherical, is because the dark matter never runs into each other. They don't, they don't bang into each other and then kind of like average out. They just have a little bit of net momentum all on the same conserved angular plane. And that's basically why we have a spherical collection of uh, halo matter. And that is the majority of the matter of the galaxy, so by and large the galaxy is actually spherical, it's just the, the non-dark matter portion of it is mostly that big plane. What advice would you have for someone who's 46 years old, has a high school degree, and likes physics but isn't sure if they want to uh, get a master and a doctorate due to the cost? How could they continue to dive deeper into the subject? Uh, well, I'd say if you're on a high school diploma, you're already up one on me. I got my GED. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, let's see. You know... It's really hard to go back to grad school. Uh, in my experience, for most fields, when you're over that 20s age, you just not want to go back to college. I didn't. I thought about going back to finish up my PhD when I got out, and I've about twice as many credit hours you need for a master's, but you know, a couple years short of what you need for a PhD. And the idea of going back after I got out of the military and just doing more time in college was so no <laughs> so if you're in that mindset yeah go back to college if you need to get that start if you're not comfortable doing that don't ever be on the impression you can't get an education without college i learned a ton in undergrad and grad uh, a ton and it gave me a very nice start but this was pre-internet you could still do it out of a library back then but there were a lot more resources out there uh, brilliant we always plug brilliance one of our sponsors they really are that good they are a very good program but um i've learned way more after grad school about physics and math than I did while I was in school. And not because I was lazy or my teachers weren't good. It's just you can keep absorbing material uh, once you learn how to learn. I'm seeing some great comments come in about the outfit and uh, people are saying Mine or hey, yours? Yours. Oh, okay. Nice hat, classic <laughs> Mad Hatter. Great outfit choice. Someone wants to know how long it took you to choose the outfit. Um, I've been poking around the idea for probably a couple of weeks, wasn't it? Say a couple of weeks before I, I, but then I, once I actually landed on it, I pretty much went on Amazon and bought them. It was and mostly trying to convince me to wear a crazy outfit too. Well, yeah, there were quite a few, I, but the, once we kind of land on Manhattan, it seems such a perfect combination with a red queen. Yes. So, um, I was very happy to dress up as a queen or a princess. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Always aim for what you know you can actually do a couple's gown on. Yes. So having some difficulties with my hairstyle here sorry uh, <laughs> sj McEwen says hello from the uk i almost got the wrong time for 
this because our clocks changed today. Oh my gosh, daylight savings time. Um, that got me to thinking, what time zone would an O'Neill cylinder around the Earth have? That's a good question. I also forgot about the time zone. We have an, does that, That's this weekend, isn't it? Did the time change today? I don't know if it did or not. We should check that. Um, I bet it may have. I, I <laughs> <laughs> My computer still says it's 413. Oh, that's then again, true. My clock says that. But yeah, but I think all of us automatically update in the house now. They might be automatic. Yeah. I'm not sure if I actually have any manual. But what about the one up there? That's a plug-in one. Oh, it says 413. Oh, okay. So if it has happened, it hasn't actually happened If yet. it has happened, we are in a different time. You know, if I was dressed up as the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, I'd keep my pocket watch out and check the time, say I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what the question was anymore. <laughs> what um, was the question? Something about O'Neill Cylinder's time Would O'Neill Cylinder have a time change? You know what? I'm just going to have to... Is, is the crown just costing no, you those thumbs in? Okay. <laughs> My crown fell off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Neo Sotos and time zones, I think that they, because they're going to roll around the planet constantly, so if they were changing time zones, you know, a low orbit one would have to change its time zone every 90 minutes. Sorry, it would have to change it 24 times every 90 minutes because that it's going to go around stressful. the planet that often. When a geostationary, I, th I think one's up a geostationary, and a lot of them probably would be a geostationary. That would be like your first place you build them all. Um, and would probably end up as uh, on the same time zone as everybody else. But my guess is we will actually go away from time zones in favor of just using UTC. And like, if you lived in say, if we went with GMT, right? Right now it's eight or nine o'clock in the evening in England, where it's like four or five. Well, it's four o'clock here in, in Ohio and New York, right? California is like one in the afternoon. Um, if we went with the GMT of, of where Britain's at, then you would just get in the habit of saying when it was you know, uh, noon in, in, or 12 o'clock in, in GMT or UTC time, that would be morning here in Ohio. So I just say it was 12 o'clock morning. You know, that's what it is. Morning, noon, and, and, and evening and midnight would remain the same, locally or time zone, but you start thinking of them as a different number. And this is not like a, an embedded concept we had going on for millennia. The, the times of the day is very much a modern, new, regular clock thing. So... I don't think that would be all that hard for us to adjust to the idea that there was just a time there was, regardless of what time zone you're in. And I think that's probably what's going to end up happening with time. Whether or not people still start doing it locally, who knows? I'm sure you'd have holdouts, you know, same as we keep using the imperial system because, you know, we have to switch over to metric and we think metric sucks because it does. Uh we have a few people that are a little more up with the modern times than we are, and they said that America t changes their clocks next week. Do we? Europe awesome. changed them last okay. night. Okay, no, that's good to know. <laughs> That's, that's particularly because we have elections the first, well, the first Tuesday after the first Monday of every every uh, November is an election in the United States and locally too, and those get very screwed up by a time change right beforehand. So, yeah. yeah. Keeping that in mind, should anyone see a bill goes forward saying don't change the time zones? <laughs> I signed on. All right. <laughs> Kellen Wong says, how would we build a wormhole network and what would be a realistic galactic empire? What would a realistic galactic empire be like? With a wormhole network? Um, I mean, the only sh well, Babylon 5, there you go, that's your example of it. I was trying to think of a, a TV show that had it, went to DS9, and of course at the same time you had Babylon 5 on there. They use hyperspace and they have a one-horn network system for it. Stargate's another good one like that. But the best one that I, I think, hands down, it's not a TV show, Peter Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga, the first, uh, the first couple books, Judas Unchained and Pandora's Star, actually things the way around, Pandora's Star and Judas Unchained, has an empire that's grown up with uh, with um, the Wormhole Networks. Uh, and I would just reference you to that because it's awesome. It's a great series. 
and it talks basically about how you would actually do those, I think, a lot better. Planet-based ones like you have installed gate. For wormhole-based networks, Babylon 5 style, probably. Kang says, do you see a future where we travel between the stars by putting our consciousness on a laser and sending it to another star system? Truth be told, no. Um, we, I mean, I could see us doing that in some cases for digital, digital uploaded minds, um, but at the same time, that's a lot of data, right? And uh, I mean, I don't know how exact a state you really need to have. I imagine that you could probably compress that a lot, like your DNA. That's a billion plus bits of data, but you can compress that down a lot, especially if you're using one strand of human DNA as your base template, and then just everybody's deviations off of that. You could probably get a few billion people onto less than uh, a few terabytes of hard drive that was poured out of the air. Uh, but there's a lot of compression you can do with that, and there's probably a lot you can do with human memory too, but that's kind of hard to say until we've actually got some practice with it. If you couldn't compress that signal, you'd be talking about trying to send a laser beam uninterrupted over many light years, which requires a lot of redundancy, carrying something like 10 to the uh, 18 bits of data. That's that's a lot of bandwidth to be sitting that way. That's interceptable. People could hijack that. Um, there's a lot of things to go around with that. Whereas a big old hard disk where everything's stored down at roughly atomic size, that strikes me, you know, yeah, it takes a lot to get there, but, you know, you could probably make some very fast ships being pushed by laser beams uh, with the same level of integrity that would just add, like, 10% onto your journey time. I have a feeling that if I had a maid that had done my hair, that I would have her head chopped off. Off with her head. <laughs> I, I, could, I could believe that, too. <laughs> Merv Johnson... Thank you for your super chat. You often practice a pre preface by saying, barring any new physics. Well, in what other areas might we actually learn new physics? Breakthrough areas to watch for. Breakthrough areas of physics to watch for. Um, the biggest thing for me is always going to be anything involving neutrinos or dark matter because they're weakly interacting particles. Anything at all that we can do to weakly interact with those or more less weakly interact with those to find out what they are. Anything we learn to expand on dark energy, and uh, those would be the two big ones. Improvements with uh, blocking magnetic fields, magnetic permeability uh, be a big one. Anything that lets us do non-omnidirectional emission of gravity. And then, of course, anything that lets us reflect, uh, reflect gamma rays, that would be another big one. But that's not really new physics, that's just probably going to require much new materials. Um, and then, of course, anything at all that lets us actually play with alternate dimensions would be... Areas I think that are plausible, you know, they, they'd be shocking, they'd be outside of my known physics, but they strike me as plausible scenarios. Whereas with a lot of things, I wouldn't expect us to find them just because you'd expect there to already be traces of them visible to us. You know, it's it's like finding out they are little portals to other universes that are already in existence naturally. You, they are they are telltale signs things like that would tend to have um, if they were matching up to other universes. So. All right. Albert Jackson says, Good afternoon, Isaac. How do you think computers and or their interfaces will change as BCIs and similar methods, such as augmented reality, are adopted for input in place of our current ones? What was the first part of the question? Computers and interfaces. Changing as we... As BCIs. Um... Or similar methods. Yeah. One thing I always keep in mind on stuff like this is, is when I was a kid, one of the most popular songs on MTV, and I, I, I kind of grew up on MTV back when that was the major way you saw astronauts land on the moon. Um, it was, there's a song called Video Killed the Radio Star, and they always talked about how you really just didn't see as many people in it, uh, you know, like silent film, 
got completely replaced by TV. But radio, and so I was thinking that you'd see that with radio. Um, but radio was stuck around. Radio was almost as big as it used to be. Small in each market, whereas something like newspaper, newspapers have been slowly dying as a medium while a lot of the style has remained. Uh, but I still got a copy of the newspaper sitting right there, like right underneath that light that no one can see off screen that you can see probably lighting my hand up. Um, and uh, YouTube uh, probably is a temporary thing in terms of this particular, this format, but something like it is definitely going to stay. We're not going to go back to the classic three networks and cable TV approach to creating, you know, easy access media to people. Uh, what those will be is always hard to guess. If I do guess, I won't tell you because I want to get stock in what I was doing at first, then I can tell everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> always profiteer off it where you can first um, but uh, I would say with BCI's our assumption that we would suddenly not have keyboards right or not have models say well I don't need to, to, to look at my keyboard anymore and type on it and see what goes up in the model you say well you don't have a model or keyboard at all you become the peripheral with that computer you know you're interfacing very directly with it but there's still a model on your eyeball because you, you have to use your brain yeah you know, you've got a contact or a simulator thing going directly into your nerves that shows you the screen right um but the biggest one would be that interfaces things i think we'd see screens stick around for a long time and, and still be around too to some degree anyway uh, just like tvs didn't replace billboards entirely um but i think you would see a switch over mostly that visual interface and how to either your hands or your eyes in terms of where you're focusing or blinking to control that interface better so who is your favorite um, galactic Emperor in science fiction? <laughs> well, if you're a 40 fan, you know what the answer that's going to have to be. Uh, I think that, although, they actually gave him a, a name recently, Neoth. That was horrible. That was like when they did that with Emperor Palpatine. They called him Sheev. Sheev Palpatine. They, they didn't, he didn't need a first name. Um, but uh, besides recent authors and directors ruining the Star Wars setting again, um... <laughs> Um, I would say probably Emperor Palpatine or the Emperor from 40k are very awesome. I'm actually kind of fond of the the Cleon Emperors in the uh, in the new Foundation series. I don't want to poke at the TV show too much because it's kind of getting there, but there's a lot of changeover. Like if you knew the Foundation, it's the exact opposite. The Foundation series by Asimov is like no action. There is no action in there, and where there is action, it's mostly to point out that action is stupid. I don't know, and personalities don't matter. That's the whole point. You know, it, it's the system grinds on mathematically with minor tweaks. But the show's good, and me, the actual effects on it. And one of the things I did like that they adapted in there is, uh, if you've seen this, they have a sequence of uh, clones. They, they, they Basically, the, the king clones himself and he raises himself. Right? It's been done before. They do a, a four- or three-stage version where they got the baby, the actual emperor, and the past emperor. So the one in training, etc. And that's actually an interesting approach. I don't know if I've seen that done before specifically. Uh, so I'd say at the moment, that's my most interesting one to look at. But I'd still say my favorite Galactic Emperor uh, was not so much Zaphod Beeblebox, the present from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but rather the crazy old man and his cat who lived on the abandoned planet and was insane that we used to go talk to to get big answers from from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So. I keep that seeing the Cheshire Cat emerge <laughs> all over the screen. <laughs> the screen over there went to sleep. Um, so, Albert Jackinson thanks you for the very detailed, in-depth answer to his question about the BCIs. You're welcome, Albert. I, I hope I actually answered it. <laughs> so. He says it was a great answer. Mark Zimmerman, thank you for your super chat. He says... From a writer, is there any way we could avoid the environmental impacts of mass modern-day air travel levels of rocket launches? Yeah. Um, 
with rocket launches, if we're going up to that scale, I think that's that is one of the big reasons why I tend to think that orbital rings and mass driver approaches would be big because those are very low. It's not just they're low energy cost; they're very low impact. Right? You, you're not going to see the big fireballs going through the sky. You think about a place like Trantor from from um, from Foundation uh, as Ecumenopolis, or the uh, Terra from 40K, or some of the other ones. Those planets would have millions of ships leaving them constantly, and they are most of them more massive and faster than shuttles. You can see the space shuttle coming in if you're anywhere near there. You can see it leaving for 100 miles around or more. Right? Uh, imagine a million ships doing that all day long. That'd be kind of irritating. But it wouldn't be too irritating because you'd very soon be uh, born to death by all the backup heat from all those ships going up and down, <laughs> uh, which is so very shortly irritating. <laughs> irritating. <laughs> And then irritated, and then toast. Yes, ah, yeah, yeah. So a warming feeling, kind of like itchy, then then up to toasty and bony. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but you probably instead then at that point you'd have to have really controlled and limited amounts of launches, uh, and then you do almost all your mass stuff by rail, as it were, which is a tether. You'd use a tether to a space elevator, an orbital ring, or a mass drive would take you out of the atmosphere. Um, at the same time, another option for that personal transport is ramjets. Uh, we were talking about, well, scramjets, actually, but we talked about that in the uh, Space Planes episode. The, you do the microwave beaming. You beam the power in, and, and instead of, you're not powering the ship, you are literally shooting the two scramjet engines on the side of it with microwaves, and it just heats that engine up, and the air that comes in from the geometry of it blows out the back. The scramjet, the fastest planes we have, is nothing but a big heater, the stovepipe, we call it, whose shape is designed to shove air in where it gets heated and flies out the back. There's nothing complex to it. <laughs> you, know, you run out of fuel very quickly that way, so the outside source of the microwaves is much more efficient. Plus, when you take the thing off, they, they coast. They don't crash, they coast, which means you can depower them from central control, which is handy. <laughs> All right, Thomas Lasanki, thank you for your super chat, and he says, if you had to give a rough estimate, let's say plus or minus a few hundred years, on when we might be seeing the first rotating habitats that people begin to actually inhabit, what would be your estimate? What would be my estimate? Um, for rotating habitats, when we see the first one, uh, would you say O'Neill zone or just a rotating habitat? Just a rotating habitat. I think in the next 20 to 40 years, if not sooner, we'll probably have something that just has the, the real axis rotation thing, uh, but I wouldn't imagine that would be very big at all. Uh, the thing is that you kind of have to build a space station with that in mind because trying to mate the two up doesn't work well, non-rotating and rotating, and the biggest reason to have a space habitat right now up there is to do zero gravity experiments in, so you got to choose between the two. We can't have both at once. Um, whenever we start doing tours up there, though, you definitely want to have that even just connected by tether so they can go sleep in the rotating wheel section. But those could be very small. You know, that's this question of when is there enough people out there to justify it. And I would guess 10 to 40 years. Uh, an actual full-on O'Neill cylinder, I really wouldn't be surprised that something like that didn't get built to like the, you know, the late 2200s, if not later. Uh, just because you need to have thousands and thousands of people inside one of those, a full-blown O'Neill cylinder. Uh, and assuming you had thousands and thousands of people living in orbit, it's not likely that they all live in the same place because they have other jobs we're doing, you know, elsewhere. So you might need millions of people in space living there full time before you'd actually get to the point that you wanted to uh, wanted to actually have a, uh, a all of them living in one place a thousands of times. So there you go. All right, the Boo Boo Master says, is it possible for a tidally locked planet to have its entire surface habitable? 
Yes, yeah. We actually talked about that in uh, our Colonize the Alpha Centauri episode. We assumed that uh, getting out of Proxima Centauri, you'd have a tightly locked ward to colonize. Um, however, you have to take some additional steps, or you have to uh, alter your standards for inhabited a little bit, right? Uh, in a tightly locked planet, you got one side that's being lit all day long, right? And mind you, tightly locked to a star, right? One side's lit all the time, the other side is dark all the time, you got a twilight band around it. When a planet's tightly locked to a star, you have tightly locked moons, almost every moon is tightly locked. And those would still be getting light from that sun in the same period that they rotate around their, uh, their primary, like uh, Jupiter and Ganymede. A lot of those big old planets, that sorry, big old almost dwarf planets uh, that we have around Jupiter and Saturn, they are tightly locked uh, to, to Jupiter or Saturn, and they actually have a day length that's uh, less than a day to a few days long in many cases. So we'd expect there to be a lot of moons that were tightly locked to gas giants that were habitable. And they would always see that planet up in the sky. They always have a brighter side because of that mere reflection off that planet. But the classic tidally locked planet, one going around a star, has that dark side. And uh, in that case, you can light that up by having a mirror there, right? Uh, you just have mirrors that are hanging in, uh, in an L2 halo orbit, kind of like what do with the James Webb telescope. Only the solar L2 rather than the moon, lunar one. Um, and that would just be pushing light right back at the surface of that planet from that goes past and mounts back, right? So you can artificially engineer that very easily, very easily. And you can tell the Mios to spin on a 24-hour basis so they weren't lighting up too much, too. And so that there is actually a daytime length. You can do the same thing by putting those at the L1 point in front of that planet to go ahead and take the tightly locked planet's sun side and actually give it nighttime and daytime. Now, could things live there normally without all that, naturally? Sure. Uh, things could adapt to live very dark. Almost all the ocean life beneath the, the little tiny epipelagic zone is adjusted to live in darkness off the marine snow that falls to them from above. Well, a planet that's being hit on one side by the sun has a constant pump action from the sun basically pushing material that way as it warms, so you probably would have a marine snow equivalent through the oceans of an entirely locked world and you probably have a weight pushing down as water and stuff collected on top of those that, like a glacier, pushed it back out. So you can kind of think of it as like a North Pole, South Pole thing at that point, where you'd have marine snow, though, that was going around the equator. Would that get all the way around to the backside of that planet? Probably not, but it's hard to say. I love seeing the Super Chats pop up and then the Cheshire Cat pop up over the top of them. It's hilarious. Um... My zombie lick says, how many years do you think it will be before we start to have profitable power satellites in Earth orbit? Hmm. Probably, do you say profitable? Profitable. Hmm. So that's always a hard question, especially the energy industry. Because <laughs> if you go through most energy companies' books and ask them exactly what qualifies as profitable, it's, it's often subsidized. So, um, Let's see. Um... Uh, not in the next 20 years. We can we will probably have prototype power satellites up in the next you know decade or two. I think that is that is the snowball we're now seeing with SpaceX, right? We could lose our inertia again like we did after the Apollo missions. That is a real possibility. But I don't think we're going to lose that inertia this time. I think we're going to start seeing that steamroll into space now. And I think prototype power satellites, as soon as they actually get the production of these, you know, the mission number up on these uh, these you know this new generation of rockets you're going to see an awful lot more test prototypes going up on a much more shoestring budget. And one of the first things that's likely to include is power satellite attempts. Uh, I expect that, especially as you get more and better graphene production, more and better semiconductor production up, expect to see a lot of that kind of effort in place. So 
Force power satellites, maybe even this decade, but not much longer. If not force profitable ones, not this generation. <laughs> okay, so Michael McConnell wants to know if you ever see a Butlerian <coughs> revolution happening in our future. Butlerian jihad, or <coughs> excuse me, revolution. Was it spelled B-U-T-L-E-R-I? Okay, Butlerian jihad from the Dune series is probably what's the references there. Um, in well. Actually, rephrase this. In um, in the Dune series, there's there's the Dune books originally written by Frank Herbert, and then there's the Dune books written after his passing by his son and Kevin J. Anderson. And there's kind of two different pictures of what the jihad was from each of those. So, um, in what we seem to get the picture from the original series was basically that people had been controlling machines that were on, on top and were using those to basically oppress everybody else because the machines had gotten everybody lazy and decadent. And uh, the people who controlled the machines used them to enslave them. And then they rebelled and smashed up all the machines and didn't use them anymore. That's the kind of the older version of that. The newer version is that uh, something kind of similar happened with some cyborg people. They took over the uh, they took over the entire empire by taking control of their machines, and then the machine itself took control of them. So more of a Skynet case in there. Um, but uh, whichever one you're going with, I wouldn't actually expect either one in this upcoming generation. There is a. I happen to be worried about Luddites, for instance. And when I was researching Luddites, because I always wanted Luddites, you know, these anti technological people who smashed up machines, what I found out is that they were actually not very anti technology at all. They, they were opposed to labor practices involving some of the early factory stuff in England. Uh, not what I call the most admirable group in most ways, but at the same time, not nearly what we get them portrayed as these days. And every time I hear about an anti technology group these days, it almost always turns out to be they're specifically against one specific application of technology or a couple you know um and so you know we are not the 1950s isaac asthma robots set up where the machines are going to be humanoid intelligent walking androids that are replacement people they are going to be your vacuum cleaners and roombas it's a lot harder to see a butlerian jihad where you smash up all the machines going on uh, where people are like, and for the safety and sake of mankind we must break all of our microchip refrigerators and roombas uh, the power washing cleaners that go up and down the skyscrapers automatically and, and, and you know those have to go too because life without risk isn't worth living or some other such commentary. I was going to say nonsense, but that's probably judgmental. <laughs> but I think you also see at the same time, yes, people are going to be very worried about you know, machines replacing people employment-wise and not just reactionarily. You know, there are some real economic concerns that are not just reactionary to putting machines everywhere. So there probably will be some limitations placed on what you're allowed to actually automate would be my guess or at least people will try that how long those will last and what form to come that's a wait and see you know that we'll see probably in the next 10 to 20 years too all right a question from alleluia thank you alleluia for your super chat and he says hello isaac do you think that we can reach a post-scarcity with technolo technology innovation even though social innovations have lagged far behind yeah, you can, I mean, I hate to say it, but we usually tend to think of post-scarcity as principally being a uh, technological development rather than a social one. The two do work together, though. I mean, you can have almost infinite production and still have uh, horrible, horrible, uh, you know, mismatching of resources to usage. Um, but, uh, you know, we are an order and more bureaucratic society now. As I like to say, we really do think much more long-term than our ancestors did, and we like our paperwork. But we are much better at administering and distributing than we used to be, um, and we tend to be more mindful of that, I think. Um, at the same time, 
you know that that helps with almost anything because you you know people pay more attention to how we're going to be moving stuff around and getting distributed. Um, but technology is the big way you get that taken care of. You just keep ramping up your production, ramping up. You know how much actual effort from a human has to be done to produce X amount of resources. I see my wife smiling like a cat over there. That's <laughs> what's the question? So they answer the question. Yes, I I do think we can get post scarcity on on technology alone, on all corn cultural. All right. The next question is from Neil Hart. If our universe exists in a complete void, is it possible for dark energy and the internal pressure of our universe against the total vacuum of the void outside it? Uh, it must be time to go to break because I, I, I that, read that one to me again, then we'll answer it and go to break. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I zoned uh, out a moment. Neil Hart, if our universe exists in a complete void, is it possible dark energy is the internal pressure of our universe against the total vacuum of the void outside it? Um, that's actually a fairly good question. We usually tell people, and you have to excuse me, the hat, it definitely heats up the skull and there's no fans on in the studio whenever we're live because of microphones and noise. Um, there's always a question, what is the universe expanding into? Uh, and, and we say, well, not really expanding into anything. As I point out in the Edge of the Universe episode not that long ago, we say that, but that is kind of an assertion. We don't actually have any evidence that it isn't expanding into anything. We just know it's not really expanding into space like we have right now. And it could be expanding into a vacuum, but I am actually pretty sure I'm hearing that there was a reason why that couldn't be the case, that it would actually be an existing, just big empty space by itself. Uh, I do not remember off the top of my head what it was, but there was a, a specific reason listed by we would see, uh, like at, at the signature, if it was actually emptying into just normal space like we have now, but essentially empty of any any matter or energy. Um, unfortunately, I cannot remember what that was. There are all usually a couple cosmologists hanging around in our chats, I've noticed. Feel free, folks, to answer that one uh, and poke me if that's the case so I can actually relay it to the audience. But I'm afraid I can't tell you that that wouldn't be the case or what that signature is this time. All right, let's go ahead and go to break, and I'm going to take this hat off and get it cooled down. So we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get a drink and a snack. And considering it's Halloween, I'd imagine you have snacks on hand. It's also a great time to get more questions into our moderators for part two of our show. On a lighthearted note while we're on break, folks often ask who my favorite authors or musicians or films are, and it is a perfectly fine topic for the live streams, but I tend to encourage our mods to fast-track questions that are about our topics or which they don't recall me answering before, and if you're curious why your question might be getting skipped, the four big ones tend to be A. It's something the mods know I've answered elsewhere before, B. It's something they know I won't answer like politically charged or loaded questions, C. It's not deemed a high priority, e.g. what's Isaac's favorite band when someone else just asked why Ganymede isn't considered as good a place to colonize as Europa, and D. It just wasn't phrased as a clear question or included profanity. Personally, I really like the Type C questions, like what am I reading this month, or if I thought Picard or Cork was the better captain, because it gives me a chance to catch my breath between trying to live formulate useful answers to very complex and difficult questions without saying something wrong or unhelpful. Our show doesn't do simple, and our audience doesn't do easy questions much either. Everybody knows how to do Google or Wiki for easy stuff, so I get the hard questions. So the easy question like your favorite flavor of ice cream actually all welcome, though obviously we try to keep them to quick and small quantities. Since we do get them a lot, my favorite musicians in loose order are Sting, Johnny Cash, The Wallflowers, Queen, Yo-Yo Ma, Garbage, Ravel, David Bowie, Thelonious Monk, Wagner, and Alice in Chains, 
and like books if you ask me on a different day the list will probably look half different. For books, my favorite sci-fi authors in no particular order and off the cuff are Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Larry Niven, Douglas Adams, Frank Herbert, Orson Scott Card, Alastair Reynolds, Timothy Zahn, Michael Stackpole, Dan Abnett, Sandy Mitchell, Chris Raitt, David Brin, Gregory Benford, Greg Bale, Andy Weir, Ian M. Banks, Vernal Vinge, Peter Hamilton, H.P. Lovecraft, and many, many more. For fantasy writers, Rogers Lasney, Robert Jordan, Brandon Sanderson, Glenn Cook, Jim Butcher, Michael Moorcock, Anne McCaffrey, C.S. Friedman, George R.R. R. Martin, Robin Hobb, Terry Brooks, Terry Goodkind, and of course the great Terry Pratchett and J.R. Tolkien, who no reading list should be without, along with C.S. Lewis, though I enjoy his nonfiction more. And for nonfiction, histories tend to be my favorites, with folks like Will Durant, Dan Jones, and Susan Weisbauer topping the list, followed by philosophical works John Locke, Kant, Hobbes, Bostrom, Nietzsche, Augustine, and so on. And I almost never read biographies, but when I do it tends to be folks like Richard Feynman or Ben Franklin, both of whom top my personal role models list. TV shows-wise I don't watch much, but it tends to be history, business, cooking, as Sarah and I have a fondness for Hell's Kitchen, or DIY stuff like This Old House as much as sci-fi, and for those curious, I have seen the Apple adaptation of Asmos Foundation and am tentatively upbeat on it thus far. And if you're wondering who I liked better as a captain, Picard or Cork, the answer is actually Benjamin Sisko, and I haven't really been able to get into any of the newer Trek stuff, starting with J.J. Abrams' reboot film, same for the newer Star Wars material though I've seen the fourth season of The Mandalorian and I liked it well enough. Empire Strikes Back and Wrath of Khan were my favorite films of each of those two franchises, Blade Runner, Dune, Casablanca, and The Maltese Falcon are probably my favorite films overall. To close out, my hobbies switch up from year to year a lot too, but this year's big ones have been cooking, bicycling, gardening, grilling, hosting board game nights, beekeeping, and of course, reading. My favorite ice cream is chocolate with chocolate in it, I take my coffee with cream and sugar, dinner my black tea, and tend to drink mostly mint and chamomile herbal tea blends. I hope that answers most of the usual personal rather than channel related questions, I know my Wikipedia page is pretty sparse and appreciate folks having done that at all, you're always free to ask more but as I said they tend to get lower priority and stuffed in to give me a mental breather, much like this intermission, which now comes to an end so we can get to more of your questions. And we're back. We've had a lot of questions about um, aliens, AI, and Halloween. So, what do you anticipate the future of Halloween to look like in outer space? The future of Halloween in outer space. That's a good question, except I'm sometimes not someone's going to have a future around here either. Uh, to, real quick, Eric Johansson's question, is it okay to give fried eggs to trick-or-treaters? The answer is yes. It is absolutely fine. Especially the marshmallow yeah. kind. Just make sure you cook the yolks all the way through to avoid, uh, oh, I was about to say salmonella, but it's not salmonella, it's the uh, other one. E. coli. E. coli. And yeah. salmonella. Yeah, and eggs. salmonella. Yeah, so yes, fried eggs, so long as they're cooked through the yolk, no, no hard-boiled eggs. But egg. the marshmallow ones are much better. The marshmallow ones are much better, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the future or the of gummy Halloween. ones. The gummy ones. The future of Halloween in space. Um, kind of the question there is: is at what point you know what's when is there going to be the shift on what becomes the scary monsters? Uh, like we have all the classic ones, and we have a lot more we kind of made up in you know kind of Disney style in the last century, uh, and uh, well not just Disney style but Roger Corman style and uh, 
you know, with other horror movie franchises. Um, I would suspect that a big aspect of scary movies in the future would actually be the person having kind of a memory fog and then a virtual reality experience where they felt like they are very much in the uh, the zombie apocalypse, where basically you have your own re- reasoning and memory pushed out a little bit so you, you do uh, are able to do uh, suspension of disbelief better, to enjoy being terrified in the setting. Um, although I wonder if that would make a lot of people not do it anymore. That was actually once. one of the questions was, did you think that the new computer technology and adaptive outfits would be used for Halloween going forward? Oh, yeah. Well, augmented reality would be a good one, too. If, if everyone walks around augmented reality, you can change your costume the same way you're on, like, Zoom, where you can change around your background image, which um, I don't do very much because I can green screen here and have better cameras, so the ability to screw around with that on Zoom is less fun. But <laughs> you know, it's, those will get better to the point where you could be walking around in augmented reality dressed in jeans, but anybody with theirs to another would see you in like a tuxedo or a fiery crown or a giant feather headdress, which I'd love to get a feather headdress. Still. We should do that next Halloween, big feather headdress. Um, but uh, Halloween in space... I don't know that it'll be impacted really at all. I just tend to assume humans in the future will tend to like their holidays more, even more than they do now. We celebrate them in, in a lot of style. So, you know, I think that would only tend to get more extreme with time. Though not as a slippery slope eternal analogy. I think we just tend to keep upgrading how much we celebrate holidays. All right, Timu, thank you for your super chat. How do we make plastics in space, especially without crude oil? Well, you don't need crude oil to make plastic out of it. What you need is basically the polymers in general. Uh, you can make them out of uh, ethanol. Uh, not Sorry, not ethanol. Bio, biodiesel, biofuels. You can make plastic out of those. Um, but uh, you can make them out of canola oil, things like that. Lots of various feedstocks are options for the uh, for that. And um, I think that there really wouldn't be too much of a problem. You just don't have that easy font of dead dinosaur and algae to make the plastics out of. Um, but other than that, it should be a concern. All right, and a question from Michael Gordano. If we put some type of manned weapons platform in orbit, like a small spaceship, could we have implications like ending mutually assured destruction? Uh, I think there's, there's a, a problem. Is for, us, for those of us who grew up in the 80s, we always called this mutually assured destruction, and since the acronym was MAD, everyone assumed it must be a bad policy. Uh, MAD was an awesome policy. It was an absolutely awesome policy. It's nice to have the defensive one, too, but basically most of human history where you've had peace along groups has been from the assumption that both sides could beat the living snot out of each other in a way that would leave them fatally wounded, uh, you know, either as a country or in terms of the leadership, right? We had that exact same thing going on usually inside of two-party rule systems, too. Both sides, either one could really off the other if they needed to, uh, but then they'd be left vulnerable to whatever would come and get them, as it were. Um, Mutually assured destruction is a very classic philosophy uh, for peace that probably predates humanity uh, in any sort of modern history. Um, but uh, I, so I don't really see that going away. You know, in space, can you have good defensive systems? Yeah. Uh, can you be vulnerable to states that are much, much smaller than you? Possibly. Possibly you have defenses that require them to be roughly on polity too. But, um, you know, better technology is not likely to eliminate that as a policy. And I, I don't know that that's a goal either. It might be nice to have, to have something better if we could think of something better, but I don't tend to think of MAD as actually a bad policy in and of itself, just a pragmatically available one. Going back to the last question, we've had a few interesting suggestions. How about a moon potato plastic 
or a mushroom fabric for your next Halloween outfit? Mushroom fabric. Uh, you know, I always liked the mushroom leather that was on there, but uh, actually, I still have a leather coat around somewhere, but I don't think I've actually worn much leather in years. Um, it's, uh, although it keeps so long, I still have leather boots from when I was in the military, and I, I, I mean, they're ones I would have gotten like 2003. Um, but uh, let's see. What mushroom level of. Oh. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. You're going to just park on that mushroom fabric. But I, I, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. All <laughs> right. Keep us moving. Jody G <laughs> says, what level of space exploration can we expect to happen by 2050? Level of space exploration by 2050. And by the way, one of my jobs, wife's as producer on the show is, is to hoy me up when I start kind of slogging down on a question. Uh, since everyone knows I can spend 30 minutes answering one since that's what we do every Thursday. Um, okay. Um, space exploration by 2050. Um you know, the last episode for the year has a bunch of predictions for the next century, specifically. But uh, I did one with Kaposki, uh maybe two years ago that was technology expected by 2050. Um, I don't really expect it to be any huge new exploration by 2050. More probes. Way more automated probes. Probably at least one speculative asteroid mining operation. Uh, you know, it's purely robotic and, and non-profitable by 2050 probably a manned successful mission or two to Mars by then, maybe an outpost there, probably a moon base that is quasi-permanent in the same way that only South Antarctica ones were. Uh, manned missions besides Mars, maybe Venus, maybe actually an asteroid, an Earth asteroid, but probably that be it. Isaac Bordeaux says, you have said on multiple episodes that you think Earth will be the center of human civilization for a long time to come. If that ever stops being the case, where will be the new center? Happy Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Um, the default would tend to be towards the center of the galaxy, but it usually assumes that you have some kind of FTL going on. Um, and I don't know that it really matters where it's at. If not, uh, you know, we were talking about Foundation. They had their Galactic Empire capital near the center of things, and then the second empire was uh, both actually from there, spoilers, and uh, from, like... Uh, planet on the very edge of the galaxy, Terminus. Um, it doesn't necessarily make much of a difference where your capital's at if you can move things around very quickly, like DC is on the eastern coast, um, San Francisco, LA, these are places that are very far away from each other uh, compared to the rest of the country. So I don't know that it really make much of a difference where your capital's at if you can travel there relatively quickly and have near instantaneous communication. And if you have a galactic empire, that's probably the case. You probably have cracked that FTL problem. If not, then, then you know, I don't think you'd actually have a new center after Earth. I think you'd have a lot of old build-up wards that were throughout the galaxy, the places where colonization that happened strongest and hardest in that region, that were probably the de facto new local capital for a given value of capital. It might be capital in the same way that, uh, you know, the, the bigger cities on the coast tend to be major capitals of the local region, even their city-states. I don't know that you'd actually ever have any galactic empires or local galactic empires that were bigger than their own star but you'd certainly have ones that were older bigger more respected more central the, the hub i think that we, we would have those in a lot of cases and i think it was just default after earth wasn't in the main role anymore so in the short term then do you think it would be better to launch a complex automated robotics to build sustainable substantial livable and other sub structures on the moon versus doing the majority of it via manned missions. Oh, yeah. Roboticizing, you can get away with. Um, you know, the, the idea is not to replace humans with robots, it's to, is to have the robots do all the grunt work so we can actually send more people in easier. 
Um, I'm not interested in building an unmanned permanent moon base and never having people go there. That would be pointless. But I don't have any problem. You know, I'm not John Henry. I'm not going to get in a, uh, a, a, a big old game to see which of us, me or the machine, can drive through a mountain forest. Uh, I can build me a robot that can go through that mountain faster, and then it's not me versus, you know, it's not John Henry versus the machine. It's John Henry versus the guy who built that machine, right? Um, same for us, right? The robots can be used to do so much that we are not going to be able to do or that we could do better right, by using the robots, and that means we can do more man stuff that way too. And I think that means that we do use the robots as much as possible because, and this is the big one, until they're truly sentient and intelligent, which they wouldn't need to be for a construction project, I don't care how many of them die in the process because they're just robots, they're not alive. Right? Whereas I don't want to lose a single astronaut to building a moon base if I can avoid it. So that raises the interesting question from Yummy Yum, who says, how risky and fatal would the first attempts at space habitat construction and living and space colonialism approximately be, assuming that we treat them with these standard safety standards that are currently expected for humans? Uh, <laughs> I suppose it depends a lot on what the standard safety levels are. There's a big difference between OSHA requirements and what actually goes on a lot of work sites, and there's a really big difference between ocean, OSHA requirements and uh, places that are off the books, and there's a lot of places off the books. Uh, I would tend to guess that we'll have relatively minimal deaths in space, especially because a lot of people who be tending to go to space are more likely to be uh, technophiles or pro-tech, in which case they probably would be out of that group of people who have access to BCIs and brain backups or repairs. So I suspect, you know, you, you oh, I got vented out an airlock. That is fixable. A person flying out into space from an airlock, that is repairable damage. Right? Um, probably even with modern technology, in some cases, we'd better save their life if we got fast, right? So I don't think we'd actually have a lot of permanent deaths in those in the early phase. All right. Um, DT Finham says, hey, Isaac, what would need to be developed on the moon before you would consider doing a month-long vacation there? On the moon? It's um, a good question. Uh, plumbing. I don't, you know, I, 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 I did a lot of camping uh, when I was in the military. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in tents when I was in the military, uh, and it gave me appreciation for lots of things um, that were not tents. I, I, I don't go camping anymore. I, I don't go places that don't have air conditioning. <laughs> so the moon would have to have um, good plumbing, uh, all the amenities I would normally find in my home, and uh, some place where I felt, depending on what the gravity was required, possibly a chamber I could spin gravity up on. So I am not really, uh, I, I'm an extreme clamper, not a camper, and that would apply to space missions too. Sarah, <laughs> what would it take for you to go to the moon? Um, you would probably need to go with me and some place comfortable to sleep where I wouldn't be bumping my head on the ceiling. <laughs> I guess the upside of, of the moon is the gravity's like, one seventh, one seventh of what it is, or one sixth, somewhere in that region. What is here on Earth? So you, 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 you have a very light. I mean, you, you could sit on a very, very light mattress and think it was a foam one, I suppose. But so uh, yeah, it's very kind of depends. I mean, I'd love to go just to see it, but mm -hmm. if we're talking a month-long vacation, that's a whole other story. Yeah, I think the thing I would mostly want to see on the moon personally uh, that would be what would get me to go there would be I want to see what it looks like when there's no air. And you're looking at, at the mountains and so forth, because it's really much more crisp without the air there. The problem is that you're either looking through a helmet, or you're looking with your uh, Mark 1 eyeball without your helmet on, which means that if they haven't put air there for you to see that core side, you are going to die shortly. So <laughs> that might be one of those things better experienced by virtual reality through a camera, you know? <laughs> okay, so 
now that you mentioned that, oxygen would be a great great starting point. Oh yeah, oxygen <laughs> on the moon is cool. And you can do that too. You can terraform the moon. It, it takes a little bit of extra active support. So Dark Sky in Winter says, given the likely incompatibility of human law with alien law and how poorly first contact has gone in human history, would a good strategy for alien first contact be, quote, no aliens unless you're cool? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I would I would argue that forced contact in human civilization has often actually gone just just fine. It depends on the circumstance. We can obviously think of a lot of historical cases where it's gone bad, but a lot of trade has actually happened between two civilizations that are fairly militant in nature and do not speak each other's language just by the old-fashioned trick of I put this down on the shore where I know you can see it while you're there, and you put something out there, and I push it your way, and you push it mine. We reach that level, we're going to trade, right? Um there's a lot of interchange you could do, and it's surprising actually how peaceful many interactions with the humans have been. Though, of course, often they have not been, too. So, um, with aliens, we should not assume that our past track record is necessarily always bad, and that's going to always affect us on the future, either. Um, and uh, it depends a lot on the aliens. To say, let us be realistic when we're dealing with people uh, in life, there are people who are going to get offended almost no matter what you do, because they are touchy. We could come across some civilizations that are like that, uh, though I don't know that they'd be able to last very long if they are touchy a lot. Uh, on the other hand, they could have individuals who are touchy, and that would not necessarily be surprising. And those might be, you know, who's going to come visit our planet first? Touchy tourists or, uh, you know, greedy merchants trying to get the quick score? Or who knows? But uh, I think that we'd be wise to be careful in our trade relations and not just jump at the first moment someone's out there. The key thing to remember if you get a hello we're here message we want to be your friends is that um, that means there's others you can talk to too. Possibly from that civilization. You shouldn't assume the first message you get offering to uh, partner up with you is not necessarily the one you want to say yes to just because the first one you got. Period. Tony Rogers says, how likely is it that Elon Musk or someone else will actually develop factories in space? Uh, I mean, I don't know about Elon Musk specifically, obviously, but I'd say 100% that someone's going to develop factories in space. Uh, sure, well, 99 point whatever minus the probability of us being wiped out before we have a chance to do that. Um, but I would say very high, very high. Uh, there's just too many things that are really nice to manufacture in low gravity. Uh, we, you know, right now, we don't have enough of our materials. It's got to be things we can actually bring up and back down, which means it's got to be worth thousands of dollars a kilogram, period. And there's not very many things that are like that, but microchips are like that. Microchips are way more valuable than gold, right, uh, in terms of weight. So we're getting to the point where that's going to be operational soon, but you have to have a certain scale to be able to do that. And I think that's something we'll see in the next 10 to 50 years, scaling up as, like, the big thing, orbital infrastructure. So um, someone wants to know if you can walk on Titan with only an oxygen mask. Um, you could walk on Titan with only an oxygen mask, but you would rapidly die from, uh, you're walking around in a freezer full of refrigerant. You know, it's, it's, it's very cold and it's made out of high pressure gas, right? So you're going to freeze that very, very quickly if you don't have some incident of layer, right? That, that does need to be a factor in there. And better gear that you use in Antarctica, right? But could you put on something that was like a deep window suit mask, cover your eyes up, right, and go outside in like a scuba suit plus coat real quick um, to basically run from here to there? Yeah, you probably could do that. Just you couldn't operate very long outside. You, you must not go out there in, in, in normal day-to-day clothing, though, or you will die like that even with a mask. So, Nittlegore says, do you believe it mining... 
Do you believe it's viable to mine a neutron star or something similar? I'm kind of curious whether something similar would be in this case. <laughs> um, the only thing I can think of that's similar to one would be a quark star, uh, and those would be even harder. Neutron stars, uh, I, I have to double check what the range of viable escape velocities is, but they have a very small range of masses between um, white dwarf and, and black hole range. Uh, each is going to have a low window of escape velocity from the surface. I think most of those are over half the speed of light, though. I want to check that, but you're talking about mining raw ne neutrons, essentially, or ha you could get some heavier matter out of there as a result, possibly. But uh, you have to be blowing it off with high-powered lasers, and you'd be getting something like the amount-to-energy conversion ratio in terms of that value, so uh, probably not. But you could do it if you're really matter-desperate, you might be able to make that a better better profitability than just using VAR energy to turn that into mass, but I don't think it's going to be, like, that's the last place in the universe you mine. Luke Hamilton wants to know if you have seen or said anything about the new Dune movie. Uh... Well, we were just talking about the Dune Mun. I have seen the trailer. They look pretty good. Trailers always look good. Um, I will go watch. I think I'm going to, so Jason wants to go watch that. He didn't think you or, or Christine would enjoy it, so we're going to go watch that together. Me and we'll Jason. go watch oh. Frozen 2 while you do that. We'll watch Frozen <laughs> 2 with you too. So. Um, but uh, I think Jason and I are going to go watch that. Jason Kilo is a friend of mine. Um, but uh, I think uh, we'll probably go watch that movie within the first week or two of it coming out, and I will get back to you guys on that, which I gather will be the next live stream. Other one I'm waiting on with bated breath is the Wheel of Time series. That is, I really love that book series. Um, I'm not certain how the TV series is going to go, but I'm always optimistic on these things. I, I don't set the ball too high, you know, because I, I, especially when you've been producing shows for a while, you start getting how hard it is to adapt certain material. So. Um, but uh, I like the original Dune movie. You know, I did that. Uh, did the actually defense on that in the Reels of Justice show, trying to argue why the original David Lynch film was good. I like the Dradowski one for what we've seen of it. I liked the miniseries they did on Sci-Fi Channel, though the graphics were kind of weak. I really liked the Children of Dune miniseries that followed it up. The visuals improved a lot, so a lot of the acting. Um, I like the video games. I love Dune 2000, Dune 2, and uh, Emperor uh, Battle for Doom. Those were all awesome games. I wish they'd make sequels. Um, and uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed the movie and its sequel, because I guess the two-parter will be good. Um, so I just have time for a couple more questions yep. here. And I think you had some additional outfit you were going to demonstrate. So while you're preparing that, I'm going to ask a question from Household Adventures. Thank you for your super chat. He says, if a black hole evaporates over time, what happens when the mass is no longer enough to keep light from escaping? Would fusion re-trigger into a sun? Okay, let me ask that question again there. If a black hole evaporates over time, what happens when the mass is no longer enough to keep light from escaping? Would fusion re-trigger okay. into a sun? I just realized how bad my hair is there. Um, although it's much cooler now without it. Um, black holes, when they evaporate, they just have their their actual... Um, see, because I can see my picture of myself. My, my, okay. I need a haircut. Black holes <laughs> Black holes evaporating. They just get smaller. They they never actually cease to have that advantage until... Sometime when they're in the, you know, microscopic, maybe when they are really, really towards the end, weighing less than, like, an electron or something, they might be a naked singularity, but until then, they just keep evaporating, getting smaller, and the, the, uh, the event horizon's radius will decrease uh, linear to mass, so you 
evaporate half your mass away, your event horizon is half the size uh, in diameter and uh, a quarter the size in surface area. Do you have for another one? Yeah, yeah. Ben Kitt says, Hello, Isaac. What is your understanding and opinion on the faint young sun paradox, and how does our current understanding of our planet's history work if this is true? How does our current understanding of the universe change with the faint sun paradox? Um, the entire climate of this planet was so different, uh, you know, in that epoch that it's really hard to make too many assumptions about what it actually was like here because the atmosphere would have been different, right? We do not know what that atmosphere was like. We just kind of guess that it was slowly rising in oxygen, but very low in oxygen. We do not know enough about the composition of the planet in terms of surface layers. We could have had many snowball earth phases, for instance, too. Um, but that is very speculative, and the records, fossil record for that is very limited. So um, I tend to think that to really get a good answer to that, we might almost have to go see some other stars to get a better answer. But I don't think it represents too much of a hazard, though, just because, you know, it's something people tend to forget. The amount of light you get is not all that strong an indicator it's the big influence for how much heat you have but it's not the biggest one here in ohio we are like the same latitude as uh italy and but much colder right so uh it, it's it's very different in because of not just the amount of sun you get though all right do john, we time for one more john cole says if we start mining the moon do you think countries will start fighting over it and i have one more after that uh yeah i think they absolutely would start fighting over it not necessarily violently but you know if you got resources coming off like crazy from the moon um you know you're going to have people fighting about that with each other in terms of who controls them we did the episode called battle for the moon and the last question for today is from flora horbeck if we can levitate a frog using magnets could we use magnets as an artificial gravity to keep humans on the ground in zero gravity uh yes but no um you know if you do magnetic boots you always see those in a lot of shows that works you can do a limited magnetic suit I suspect what you actually do is some kind of small suit that had various electromagnetics on it that tuned to adjust the gravity in the right direction, for instance, for you. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that you would probably, probably uh, not be able to use it the way people are thinking it was, like artificial gravity and uh, an actual change around for it. Um, take a bow. <laughs> <laughs> Put your back on. <laughs> I tried to answer the question. Um, but um, no, artificial gravity is not a byproduct of magnetics that we're aware of, nor is uh, magnetic levitation anti gravity. They are very different effects, you know, they affect certain types of atoms more than others, fail magnetic ones versus other ones. So, you're not, not a clean replacement. For just sticking you in place, though, I mean, magnetic adhesion, yeah, that works. So, <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and close out there for the day. And uh, I actually not wearing the bottom end of this, so it's just the top. <laughs> Back. Back <laughs> we'll see you all <laughs> next week <laughs> so that will wrap us up for the day I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord or our website IsaacArthur.net thanks for joining us and we'll see you Thursday